Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, January 25th, 2023. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, we are honored to have with us I'm now going to go through the title. Senior fellow, like Christine, at the American Enterprise Institute, director of its Critical Threats Project, and head of the Russia team at the Institute for the Study of War, Frederick Kagan. Fred, thanks for coming on again to enlighten us about matters international, geopolitical, and military. Great to be with you, John. So let's let's get so uh, we have a major development uh, in the last couple of days uh, in the West's approach to the war in Ukraine um, after apparently a very testy weekend of talks and negotiations. Uh, Germany agreed to send Leopold tanks. Leopard. To Leopard. Leopard. Did I say Old, I was Leopold Stott by Tom Stoppard is on my brain. <laughs> Leopard tanks to Ukraine from Germany. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, we in the United States announced that we are going to send uh, the Abrams super tank to uh, to to Ukraine as well. Apparently part of the deal that made it possible for us to convince Germany to send the Leopard. Um and this is a huge change, right? Uh, can you describe why this is it? Why people should say we've moved into a new phase of of the war with this decision, or have we? Well, we've moved into a new phase of Western support. Um, right. It's not a new phase of the war. Um, frankly, it's a phase we should have moved into a long time ago. Um, mechanized warfare—you can only conduct mechanized warfare if you have like mechanized vehicles sort of definitional and that means tanks um the ukrainians and but mechanized warfare serious mechanized warfare eats up tanks pretty fast they they get they get damaged they get destroyed uh they break down and ukraine doesn't have a military industry to uh, regenerate its own combat losses so for many many months we've been shipping ukraine or our allies have been shipping ukraine all of the soviet era tanks they could lay hands on in their own stocks and of course because we have a lot of uh members of nato from eastern europe and other partners around the world that have a lot of soviet equipment we had you know we're able to flow soviet tanks into uh ukraine but it became clear many months ago that that supply was drying up um and it's not a replenishable supply because none of our allies or partners produce uh t-72s so it's been clear for some time that we were going to have to find a way to provide ukraine with different kinds of tanks that we actually do produce um the the leopard uh two is a very good tank um and it is probably uh better suited for the rap its rapid introduction into the ukrainian military for various reasons i could go into um the m1 is in some respects, a better tank. In other respects, a little bit more challenging, but it requires a very different logistics arrangement from any other tank, and so it's it's been complicated. Um, these are the kinds of factors that have been uh, weighing on the debate because, for reasons that I don't fully understand, the Germans have been insisting that they were not going to send 
tanks or give any other countries permission to send Leopard uh, tanks unless the U.S. sent uh, Abrams. I, I don't understand why the Germans took that position particularly, but they did. Uh, and so we've spent, uh, let me say, we've wasted weeks uh, wrangling with the Germans over whether we were going to send M1s or just get them to send Leopards. And finally, it appears that we gave in and just said we would send M1s. And so they agreed to let the Leopards free. So I'm going to pick your brain briefly about that, um, because so what I understand is that we're not sending M1 Abrams from our stockpiles. We're committing to send them future production, which some officials are saying on background could take years. But that was necessary to unlock these German stockpiles. We've been debating with ourselves, negotiating with ourselves over what platforms to send and and then just contradicting ourselves. We had this big, long debate over long range artillery. It was impossible. It was escalatory. And then all of a sudden we did it. Couldn't send Patriots because they had to be Americans had to use them. And then we discovered, oh, we could train these people on foreign soil. And then we hear the M1 Abrams is so sophisticated. It can't fall into Russian hands. And Lloyd Abrams and is heavy, dead set and against too heavy, it. And too heavy. Dead set against it. Will never happen. Until none of that matters. All of a sudden, just would give, it doesn't matter anymore. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Why are we having these public negotiations? What interest is served by that? Who's introducing this into the public bloodstream? Well, look, I mean, you 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 answered the question up front. Um, we've been negotiating with ourselves uh, largely about, I think, what we've things that we've decided might be escalatory from the Russian perspective and might prompt the Russians to some unspecified and at this point extremely unclear. Um, escalation. Um, and I think that the, the, the whole debate about escalation uh, and what might prompt Russian escalation has been at the center of resistance from somewhere in the administration, I don't know exactly where, uh, to providing Ukraine with these weapons. Um, I've never thought that that was a well-founded uh, debate. I do think it was very much a negotiation we've been having with ourselves rather than with the Russians. It's noteworthy the Russians never have escalated uh, in response to any of these previous um, uh, weapons provisions, and I don't think they're going to escalate in response to this. Um, but I think in the effort to shore up that increasingly shaky argument, we've had these various different explanations uh, offered about why we don't want to send this system or that system without relying on the escalation argument. Now, I want to make it clear that it, it is not, there is a difference between giving, having the leopards go and having the M1s go in terms of what the requirements are for Ukraine. The, the M1 is a much heavier, more complicated system to use and maintain. Um, I'm not buying this whole we can't train Ukrainians. We've trained Iraqis to operate M1s for heaven's sake. I mean, it's this is it's this. I mean, it, yes, it's a complicated system, but I'm fully confident that Ukrainians who have figured out to, how to do all the stuff with commercial drones that they've done can figure out how to operate M1s. Um, so th that's a that's a red herring. But the logistics arrangements, the infrastructure that you need to operate M1s are different from those that you need to operate almost any other tank, and like that. But here's the thing. We were the ones who decided that this was going to be somehow escalatory to provide the M1s, which is, I think, nonsense. And it's been visible, as I said, for many, many months that we were going to have to do this. If we had begun helping the Ukrainians establish the infrastructure they were going to need to operate these tanks, when it became clear that that was going to become necessary, this wouldn't be an issue now. 
Well, this so, is what's the, 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 the escalatory thing. I just to take another beat on it is really it's fascinating to watch as a, I'm a non foreign policy person, but just to listen to the rhetoric of the Biden administration. Obviously, these tanks will will give the Ukrainians the option not just of maintaining where they are now, but of regaining territory they've lost. Right. They need these tanks in order to to gain back the territory the Russians have taken. Weirdly, like you never hear the Biden administration officials talking about these possibilities. I mean, even that is somehow seen as like, I don't know, belligerent or escalatory rhetoric. I the caution, I understand the caution in a geopolitical framework. But what are your thoughts on on how these these this nitpicking over weapons, which has been going on throughout this conflict on, on our side, is that is that State Department? Is that is that uh someone within the Biden world who really doesn't want to do this. Biden, we know, is not not a foreign policy genius. So clearly he's being heavily advised on on what he should say in public. But is there something he could say that would kind of prevent this sort of problem in the future when the Ukrainians need more more military might from the West? Um, look, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of trying to speculate who's doing what in the administration, because <laughs> at the end of the day, Look, I don't know. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Right. Um, I don't think that Biden would agree with your assessment that he's not a foreign policy genius and therefore sure needs to be advised. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm always cautious as a general matter about deciding that decisions by administrations about foreign policy are not, in fact, the president's, you know, wishes. Yeah. But I, I I really don't know. I think we, we sort of rapidly get into the realm of phrenology when you're trying to figure out, you know, who exactly is doing what. Well, in so administration. Let me, it's an so let me put voice, it this. So let me let me just put it this way then: uh, the rhetoric of the administration upon at the beginning of the war far outstripped the administration's actual commitment to support. Biden was, you know, this cannot stand. We will reverse it. Putin is a total, you know, this is like Hitler, all that stuff. And yet at the same time, we had this track where people were saying, we got to be careful about how much stuff we commit. We don't want to, we don't want this war to escalate. We don't want it to go on. You know, we have to give Putin an off ramp. We've got to be able to give him, you know, a face saving exit. And we don't know what the consequences will be of letting this uh, ragtag uh, Ukrainian army have our our stuff. Um, so in some sense, the Biden administration created this cognitive dissonance because they're like, we're all in. And then they're saying, we're not all in. Like, we're, we're not really all in. We're all in. Man, we'd love to see Ukraine win. But... We got to be very ginger about how much we do. And it seems like we're now almost a year, or it'll be a year, a month from today, it'll be a year that <clears throat> Russia invaded. And we've kind of backed into, as Noah, I think, delineated, patriots, uh, you know, and now uh, drones, uh, long range, medium range missiles, longer range missiles, and now heavy armory right so we're now all in well without ever getting the credit with weirdly sort of without ever going we're not okay we're all in you know hey want... well we're not all in because we've yet to have the debate about fighter jets yeah well that's true and and of course and of course american personnel which is the ultimate you know all in well, that yeah, i don't right. think we're ever we're ever gonna go there but unless I, you know, I, I, training. I, 
Fred, I have a question, keeping the time frame uh, stuff in mind. So Germany's sending 14 of these, right? So right off the bat, and then, then they're going to send uh, a, another round. I heard Ukrainian says they need uh, 300 tanks and like 600 additional armored fighting vehicles from the West. First of all, does that assessment make sense to you? And second off, how long would that take? to to happen to deliver okay um you guys throwing a lot at me there so Sorry. let me try to let me try to break this down um we're not all in we've never been all in because all in means we're fighting okay and the biden administration and this is this is a key point the biden administration was very clear president biden was very clear from the outset we're not going to enter this war we're not going to fight we're not going to fight in this war we're not going to send u.s troops here we're not going to get involved in this um all we're going to do is provide uh, material support. Okay, so that already establishes a line that is important. Um, we can we can talk about the merits of that, but um, it is unquestionably the case, I think, that if we can conduct ourselves such that the Ukrainians defeat the Russians and we don't have to turn this into a Russia-NATO war, that's a good thing for us, selfishly, which is fine. That's Biden's job, is to take care of American interests and NATO interests, first and foremost. So... You know, I, I don't I don't want to get into the argument about whether we, should, yeah. whether we should be involved in this or not, but that was the decision he made. So there is, therefore, in principle, uh, uh, some complexity in policy about how, you know, how far can we go in supporting Ukraine before we become so clearly belligerent that the Russians might decide that they actually do want to expand this conflict and escalate it in various different ways and we are dealing with a nuclear superpower and that is that is a concern so i think i don't want to just dismiss blithely and i'm not saying you were but i don't want to dismiss blithely the issue of you know we do have to calibrate in a certain way the problem that i have is not that per se the problem that i have is that we then got into a hyper-intellectualized hyper-sophisticated discussion with ourselves about what might prompt escalation without ever really talking publicly in any detail about what escalation would mean and what Putin's options actually are that are anything other than suicidal and whether we think Putin actually is suicidal. And so the issue all along has been, and my what's been driving me crazy all along has been, what do we think Putin is going to do? What does escalation mean? Is he going to invade the Baltics? Is he going to actually decide that he wants to go to war with NATO? Because it's been Russian doctrine for 20 years that they don't want to get into war with the NATO because they know perfectly well how that war ends. They've never been confused about that. They were confused about whether they could defeat Ukraine. They've never been confused about whether they could prevail conventionally against NATO. So there's not a world in which it looks attractive to Putin to initiate a conventional war with NATO. And I've always found the idea that we were going to do something that was going to prompt him to choose that course of action when we were offering to have him not have a war with NATO was likely. Then we get into the whole nuclear thing. And my problem here is there's there's a lot of very glib talking about something that's not glib at all. And it's this is now granted for the administration. The Russians are not helping by design. They'd mean yeah. not to help, right? right? But the Russians are also talking very glibly about nuclear use. Because they want it in the consciousness. But look, th- this gets to, okay, did we seriously think that sending the Russians high Mars was going to prompt them to nuke somebody? Did we seriously think that sending the Russians M1s is going to cause them to nuke somebody? It became a kind of a shorthand, I think. And I think we got into a real 
we got into our own head about what might trigger escalation. And then we started talking about systems and red lines that even the Russians had never established. So I just want to separate the there is a there is an important, valuable, and appropriate discussion to have about the level of our involvement because we want to keep this short of a Russia-NATO war. Right. But that doesn't extend all the way down to these uh individual systems kinds of things, or it shouldn't, but it but it has. Abe, in terms of the the timelines, it's complicated. Um, that's always my answer. I'm sorry, I'm very aggravating. It's oh it's always complicated. Look, um, I don't know when the I don't know when the M1s are going to go. I don't know when they're going to show up. Certainly, there isn't a world in which we got them the M1s tomorrow and they were instantly able to use them. So that that was that was never going to be a thing. Um, and it will take some time to get the leopards there. Now, the, the issue is less about how many leopards the Germans send, and more about whether the Germans let other allies send leopards. And my understanding is that there are dozens and maybe more than a hundred leopards potentially on the table from the allies all in combined with a company of British Challenger 2s and stuff. And so I, I think we're easily talking about, you know, well over 100 tanks that could probably go in relatively quickly if everybody decided they wanted to do that. And I think that the allies, uh, the non-German allies want to do that. Um, Poland, Finland. Poland, yeah, the other... Finland, other, right. Spain? I think so. <laughs> yeah, I don't Spain. remember. Well, everybody. so it's not just that. Can we talk briefly about the spring fighting season? Um, because it's not just tanks. You said the Challenger we, 2s. Yeah, we can. But before we do that, sure. I just want to I just want to finish this thought. I'm sorry, which is we need to keep another dynamic in mind here, which is that the Ukrainians have had a practice of not, you know, shooting their last bullet and then waiting for us to give them more ammunition, because that would be kind of like stupid. So when they see that they are running out of systems and they have no guarantees that they're actually going to get more systems, they tend to hoard and they tend to hold back and be more conservative, which is sensible. They don't want to start something they can't finish. I'm completely hypothesizing here. I have no evidence to back this up, but it is conceivable that knowing that there will be tanks coming can free the Ukrainians up now to take actions that they would not have taken if they were not sure that they were going to get any kind of replenishment. So the time space here is potentially more complicated than when do the tanks arrive right. and make it to the battlefield. No, before we get to the spring fighting season point, I just want to, because th there's a larger geostrategic point about, okay, we're not all in, but we, so as I say, we backed over the course of a year into this providing the ukrainians with increasingly sophisticated and useful weapon systems and defense systems and all of that and there must be as we keep hearing that the russians are planning this massive offensive and throwing bodies at the at the front in different places one of the important matters here that is not, you know, specific to, okay, there are going to be 100 tanks or 300 tanks or 75 tanks is us or the West saying to Putin, uh, we have not been worn down. We're not tired of this. We're not suing for peace. In fact, it's January of 2023 and we are escalating. Um, even though we're not supposed to escalate, but we are now escalating. The thing that you must be most afraid of, which is that we will have, you know, the world's best tank aimed at your infantry, is going to come true. And the psychological benefit of that to the Ukrainian cause, 
I mean, that's also part of war. No, I mean, we do. Oh, want... yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> if you could address that, and then we can actually get to the spring fighting season and what, what might happen there. Yeah. You're absolutely right, John. I mean, a, a big part of what uh, Putin is is counting on is that the Western will to continue to support Ukraine will break and he will uh, be able to isolate Ukraine and in a one-on-one -on -one contest, ultimately wear it down and defeat it, which is probably true. Um, he, you know, we should remember that going into the winter, he was counting on the winter to break the West because he was going to freeze the West death and then the West was going to surrender. That was unquestionably his strategy. Um, it's one of the weird moments when climate change was our friend um, because it's been a warm uh, winter in and Europe. in Europe and um, which has been a, our friend in a variety of ways, among other things, because um, it's actually made it so that there's not going to there's definitely not going to be a Russian invasion uh, from Belarus because nothing froze up there and the marshes are not passable. Um, so. <laughs> I'm not a fan of climate change and I'm not a climate denier, but in this case, climate change actually helped us out um, a little bit because we needed a warm winter over there and we got one. So he's constantly trying to, Putin is constantly trying to find ways to break our will and separate us from the Ukrainians. And this was a big moment. And it is a moment when we're saying, no, we're not, our will is not breaking and we're, we're going to continue to supply them and to escalate in our provision of weapons. And that's important and critically important for the Ukrainians and important for, uh, Putin, uh, because we're going to have to change his calculus very fundamentally if we're going to get to any kind of resolution of this conflict that we might be willing to accept. That the spring fighting season is much more complicated to talk about, and here there's a lot of there's a lot of noise in the information space that's I think confusing a lot of people. Um, yes, war in Ukraine is seasonal, but it's not seasonal in the words that we keep using which are largely actually holdover terms from the afghan war there isn't a spring fighting season per se there's a winter fighting season and we've been talking about this for a long time that winter generally tends to be an optimal season to fight in ukraine and there's a summer fighting season where it's optimal to fight there's a fall rainy season which we got through which is very very muddy and then there's an even worse usually spring muddy season which is called the rasputitsa which means that all the roads go away basically um and so before we get to the spring fighting season we're going to get through the rasputitsa happens sometime in february march uh depending on on climate maybe a little less this year because things haven't frozen that much so i don't know there's not going to be a thaw effect in quite the same way but here's the thing the fighting never stopped that both the russians and the ukrainians continued try offensive and defensive operations all through the fall muddy season by the way the war began in the winter putin invaded february 24th and then they fought all the way through the rasputitsa in 2022 so we have this notion in our heads that there are like fighting seasons and then fighting is more intense no fighting is intense all the time now there are periods when it's it makes more sense to conduct major offensive operations but even there there, neither side has actually stopped offensive operations based on how muddy it is, because we need to remember something. They live there. It's cold every year. It gets muddy twice a year, all the time. They build their systems to be able to handle this, and they train their soldiers to be able to handle this. So it slows things down, but we're in the middle of major offensive operations. The Russians are conducting major offensive operations around Bakhmut. doesn't look like that because they're failing. 
but they they we already had that offensive and i think the ukrainians will uncork a counteroffensive as soon as they possibly can i don't think that they're going to wait for some later spring fighting season if they can avoid it well it seems to be the west's preference to see that occur sooner rather than later i'm assuming spring because it's going to take some time to get all these platforms there these vehicles um, you know, you had Tony, yes, Tony Blinken yesterday saying, you know, maneuver, maneuver weapons, maneuver is the watchword here because they're concerned about the degree to which fighting in these places, as you say, which is ongoing, is settling into a line of contact that'll be pretty entrenched and hard to break. So we're sending not just these tanks and ones won't probably see battlefield operations for a very long time. But as you say, these Challenger 2s, also German and French APCs and American strikers and Bradleys and all that stuff is just designed to prosecute a fast moving conflict. And they say sooner rather than later, because they don't want these lines to settle. But then we got some news from, I think, the New York Times about maybe Washington softening on its opposition to seeing a real offensive towards and maybe into the Crimean Peninsula. And then you get into the geostrategy of that. And how does Russia respond to that? And does Russia really see Crimea as perhaps a different animal than these other four provinces that it also tried to subsume into the Russian Federation proper? Um, so... I see this fast moving conflict, if it occurs, occurring in the spring, it would take some time for that to happen. But do is it proper to focus on the lines around the Donbass region? Or do you shift to the south? You see a lot of people in Washington beginning to say, well, go for the south. Well, look, again, I don't know. I mean, I look, I'm handicapped by the fact that by our our, our own policies, all CTPISW policies, we don't collect on what the Ukrainians are doing. So I, I don't know exactly what the Ukrainians are preparing. We've seen a lot of reporting that the Ukrainians have been preparing for an offensive or to continue their counteroffensive, resume their counteroffensive around Luhansk um, and push uh, east there. And they've been preparing for that. I don't know that they need to wait for the spring for that. I mean, again, I think part of the issue may be uh, waiting to know that they will get reinforcements um, and therefore be willing to expend their, you know, their last concentrations of armor. I don't know whether they will wait for the spring or not. I don't, they certainly don't want to. Um, and I don't know. There's a whole other calculation here that's going on, by the way, though, which is the Russians launched this massive offensive at Bakhmut and the Ukrainians have chosen to hold Bakhmut. Um, and it's very possible that the Ukrainian decision to hold Bakhmut has led to the diversion of forces that they've been preparing for a counteroffensive and that we're hearing hints of this from U.S. officials who are complaining about it. I think I candidly think you can make the argument either way. We've we've argued in our updates that the decision to try to hold Bakhmut is strategically sound, um, even if it delays counteroffensives. But um, there are U.S. officials who think that that's not true and that's something to debate. So there's a lot more going on here in terms of timing than the tanks and when the tanks show up um, and the seasons. I think if we could if we could back back out just a little bit and just be be a little war one on one and say that the siege of Bakhmut is a choice, the fundamentally a choice of the Ukrainians. They could retreat from Bakhmut and and basically let the Russians have it, is what you're saying. But they've chosen to, for various reasons that you say are arguable, you know, like they have chosen to make a stand there and to say you, you this, you know, you shall not, you shall not take this city, and that they could, in the long way, you know, to tactically, strategically, in war, people retreat and then they regather, re, you know, they they gather their forces in new places and they go at another 
target. So, um, but that though that is the ultimate original opportunity cost. You know, if you're going to do something yep. here, you can't do it over there unless you have, unless you're the United States in the you know in the in the Cold War and you're planning for two massive fronts in wars and you know like most militaries don't have that capacity. Right. right? It's one battle at a time or one site at a time. Well. I mean, yes, although we've contributed to that by by dripping in, you know, systems. Yeah. I mean, we, we right. need to rec- we need to own our own responsibility for yeah. slowing down the Ukrainian counteroffensives here because we've played a significant role in that, that the constraint on them is not manpower. The constraint on them is equipment. Right. And we've contributed to that constraint. And there is something that's that's sort of not entirely edifying about having us say, you know, Hey, you guys really need to get this going. You need to move. You need to move. Oh, gee, you don't have the systems to do that. (laughs) And it's like, okay, well, you know, how did that happen? But look, I only want to make this point. And you can, again, you can, you can argue Bakhmut either way, but we've made this point in our update. And I want to say it here. The United States has not had to make a decision like this since 1865. It, it, It is one thing to be the ultimate armchair general like I am and like we all are and say, hey, I think it would be better operation for the Ukrainians to give up Bakhmut and focus on the counteroffensive. President Zelensky and General Zeluzhny have got to look at this and say, okay, we've already lost the following cities that are our cities with our people. And the Russians have destroyed those cities. And the Russians are committing genocidal acts against those people. And in the areas the Russians are occupying, the Russians are deporting Ukrainian children and engaging in ethnic cleansing and taking them to brainwash them and conducting a whole bunch of crimes against humanity and atrocities on our people. Are we comfortable giving them another one? Are we good? Are we good with giving them yet another city and letting them do that to more Ukrainians behind the lines? Or at what point do you say, look, this is enough. We're not, you know, we're done with this. We're not doing this anymore. That's one whole calculation. Now, you know, again, as a as a clinical military matter, I could have a discussion about whether it would be better to let them get Bakhmut. But we can't dismiss this because these are kinds of decisions that, that we don't have to make. Um, and we haven't had to make for, you know, 160 some odd years. Yeah. Beyond that, it's not clear to me exactly what the option was in Bakhmut because it cannot have been the case that it was a good idea just to let the Russians have it. Because if you let the Russians have it, then they are positioned on some important highways and not having paid a high price for the city, potentially are positioned to drive in a way that could unhinge the front there in a dangerous way. So you have to impose some cost on them for taking the city and the optimal place to impose cost on an attacker is in urban built-up areas. Right. So it's a it's a fine line. I don't think any sensible military strategist could have said they should have just let them take it. The question is, how hard should they be fighting for it? And the argument is, some people are making, is they, they're fighting too hard. But it's a matter of degree, not absolutes. And I just, I think at a certain point, you can't dismiss... The political realities, because I'm a Clausewitzian, and I think that war is actually, you know, a use force for political objectives, and so political objectives matter here. And it's, I think, not just political objectives, because it goes back to the point I was making about the West's commitment to Ukraine and the war, which is Putin has to know that every time he goes at Ukraine, it is going to be a deadly, difficult, 
he also we are trying to wear him down that's i think your point we're trying to wear him down and get him to a point at which he would say i can't win this right there's no winning this and that's a psychological that's not a balance of forces count you know there's no counting that is the breaking of his will right i mean that's fundamentally what we're well, I'd like to break his will. Yeah, I'd like to break his will. You want it faster. Yeah. I have no confidence that I will break his will. Right. But I also, since you can't, so defeat means depriving the, the enemy of the will to, or the ability to fight. That right. That's def, doctrinal definition of defeat. I don't know that I can break Putin's will because that's not a thing anyone's ever succeeded in doing. Right. We, The Ukrainians are breaking his ability to continue his fight. Right. And they have killed, I don't know how many tens of thousands of Russians uh, around Bakhmut, Yevgeny Prigozhin built this whole force of of convicts that he's hurled at Bakhmut, and that reports increasingly indicate have just it's been destroyed. It's been this it's is, been this decimated. is the way this is this, this is the Wagner group. Yeah. About the Wagner group, yeah, that they just created these th- this just cannon for these human right. sort of human cannon fodder, emptying prisons and just yep. throwing you know yeah, and the Ukrainians have killed a you know. They're killed or had cause to desert or surrender tens of thousands of these guys. Um, so that's a not a that's t- not really a replenishable resource on the Russian side. There are more prisoners, but you know, I mean, draw down that population, um, and it's it's another it's another force that has gone to Ukraine and died. And one of the most important dynamics that's going on here is whatever Putin's will to continue this war might be. The Russian people's willingness to continue to die in this war is very important. And I think this is a, this is an issue that we need to pay more attention to, because, yes, you can look at the polls that come out of the Levada Center, which has been a, a heroic organization that has done great work actually doing real polling in Russia. And their their stuff is remarkably reliable, given the circumstances in which they operate in. And they show that polling for Putin is, remains very high support. And that uh, if you ask Russians, do you support the war? You know, large majorities say, yes, they support the war. And so everyone says, look, the Russians are all with Putin. Okay, here's the thing. Putin goes to call up reserves in the fall. And he manages with tremendous difficulty to call up 300,000 reservists. 700,000 Russian men flee the country to avoid that reserve call up. Okay. That is a more telling indicator to me than any polling about how do you support this war about where Russians actually are. That what caused that? What caused that is simply the fact that the Ukrainians have created the reality on the ground and the idea in the minds of Russian young men that Ukraine is where you go to die. And that is a very important thing because it is a constant source of friction and depression of enthusiasm in Russia for actually fighting the war that I can guarantee you that what's gone on in Bakhmut has only contributed to. And that is an important success in that regard. And it's it's kind of strategic success, because if you think about how do we reach the Russian people, the Ukrainians are the only ones who are in contact with the Russian people every day. Right. Well, and they and, have a very, they've been very effective at communicating that message, right? Which, of course, is in conflict with the West's argument about how let's just find a negotiated peace. Let's just a- find a absolutely. negotiated peace. The Ukrainians have communicated this, but they've also, I mean, the most direct communication is body bags or people just not returning at all, which is what's happening increasingly. And that is going to wear because Putin is trying to turn this into World War II. 
there's been a whole effort. Heroic, that the Russians, Stalingrad. The it's Leningrad. Leningrad. No, no, no. Leningrad. He's from Leningrad. Excuse me. I'm he's, sorry. Yeah, he's from Leningrad. Yeah. So at Leningrad, yeah. the siege of Leningrad, right? He's done this as the great patriotic. This is becoming the great patriotic special military operation. Yeah. And it's it's bizarre, but he's really trying to rally. But here's the problem. There are no foreign troops on Russian soil. And as much as Lavrov gets up and says that the West is conducting a genocide against Russia, Russians know that that's not actually happening. So Putin is trying to, to build this up because, and this is something we need to be concerned about. This is not just about Ukraine this year. He He's trying to put Russia on a war footing so that he can rebuild a major conventional Russian military threat in the coming years to NATO, not just to Ukraine. And he's wrapping himself in the mantle of Stalin and the banners of the Red Army to fight the great patriotic special military operation. The Ukrainians are showing that that's not that's just a fast road to death. But at the same time, there's no actual threat to Russian territory. And this is a very important thing. And this is where I think there's an effect that Battle of Bakhmut is having that we're just we're not paying attention to because it's not operational on the battlefield. And we know uh, from the, these stories about how the Ukrainians are finding targets to aim at that word is getting back from the battlefield to all over Russia because these guys have cell phones and they're calling they, home. They and have cell phones. They're calling home. people what's they're going They're sending on. videos and pictures yeah, back yeah. home. Yeah. yeah. So that's new. That's a new feature of war, you know, in, in, in the history of warfare, which is real time communication, instantaneous real time communication from the battlefield home, which acts as a break on patriotic propaganda. It it can, although it's actually been very complicated. It's it's interesting because there we've we've had intercepted uh-huh. communications of Russian soldiers sort of telling their their parents what's going on, their parents telling them that they're lying. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, the brainwashing, and we shouldn't underestimate the brainwashing. Yeah. But look, at the end of the day, there is no single more powerful communication than Yvonne went to the front and a body bag came home, yeah. or Yvonne went to the front and we're lost communication with him and the MOD won't say anything. And we know that that means he's probably either dead or, or prisoner. That's a direct communication and the yeah. Russian government can't do anything about that. Right. Um, so getting back to America, dom- maybe domestic politics is not the right way, but talking about the uh, United States, its defense budget, it's uh, what's going on here. Um, clearly one of the things that caused the Pentagon to worry in the early months of the war now is this question about whether or not there is the will in the United States to replenish the stocks that we are depleting here to give them to Ukraine, that we need, we're going to need to have significant increases in defense spending as this war goes on, simply to bring us back to par uh, in terms of our our armaments and things like that that we need to protect. Well, but, but this is so bizarre. Okay, I, I don't know if this is yeah. your thing, but you would think just like the law of supply and demand would kick in at some point. You have a lot of Pentagon procurement, Navy secretary, they're all really mad at the arms industry for failing to replenish this ordinance. We're digging into supplies in South Korea and Israel. Why? How? This has been going on for a year. Why hasn't the defense industry, the you know, the, the arms makers kicked in here and started replenishing? We're just talking about ordinance. We're not even talking about platforms. Um, I believe that the 
Republicans have indicated that they want to cut the defense budget. The House Republicans have indicated they want to cut the defense budget by $75 billion. Right. Okay. This so isn't there, a question of money, though. Yeah. Well, it is Money's a question there. of money because the orders are there. But th- these complaints happened before the Republicans made clear their interest in, in cutting the defense budget. Like it was back in December or something like that. Oh, yeah. No, no. First I first heard about this this um, supply chain problem in terms right. of uh, getting bullets and stuff. And, and I'm not interested in just yeah. blaming the Republicans, yeah. but I'm saying that... I'm happy to blame the Republicans. We can, defense I mean, industry... Not, look, yeah. d- defense industry is complicated and, and all of this kind of stuff is complicated. I don't know the details and the ins and outs of the contracts that have been offered and so forth. Uh, my understanding is that the the issue is that in order to really do this, our defense industry would need to ramp up its production capacity in a way that has that involves long term sunk costs, and that is that supply and demand is true, but supply and demand is also complicated because when you have to build out a lot of fixed infrastructure that you don't know you're going to continue to need then there's a whole additional conversation there. And the one thing that we have not done, and the Biden administration hasn't done it, Congress certainly hasn't done it, is indicated that there is going to be any sustained increase in U.S. defense budgets and defense orders. And so we're asking, we're fundamentally, and I'm not interested in defending defense industry either, um, but we're fundamentally, I believe, in the position of asking defense industry to build a lot of extra capacity um, in a circumstance where there's no indication that that capacity will continue to be uh, used hereafter, which is what the actual problem is, in my view. Right. right. So that suggests we've allowed the these capabilities. If this requires capital investment to meet these orders, yes, then we've correct. allowed this to, to yes. atrophy. Absolutely. Our- this is the, there's a whole yeah. story that that my colleagues at, at AEI, Mackenzie Eglin, Elaine McCusker. Uh, have been talking about for many, many years, and many other people have been talking about yeah. the damage that we have done to U.S. defense industries ever since the end of the Cold War um, by consolidating it, by cutting it down, by trying to make it efficient because we didn't, we weren't going to do war no more. Even when we got into Iraq and Afghanistan, we didn't want to do big mobilization for any of this stuff. And so our defense industrial base is inadequate in many, many, many ways. And in order to get it right, we have to recognize that we're going to have to make sustained investments in defense industrial capacity. But if you go to Congress and you advocate for sustained investments in defense industrial capacity, it's one of the least popular things you could possibly be advocating for. It is a problem. And let me just flag the additional problem we're having with this war that we have had with other wars as well, but this one in particular. Most people, I think, still imagine that there is somehow a time machine that we will get into when this war ends and then we could go back to pre-February yeah. 24 and everything will be hunky and dory again. Yeah. And we're not recognizing we are in a new era. Putin has changed the world. And he is mobilizing Russia in a way that in coming years, it could pose another significant threat to NATO and Europe and the United States. And we're going to have to match that. We're, see- we're talking about Taiwan. Great. What are we building about Taiwan? Not enough. Okay, we've decided that we're not interested in the Middle East anymore. Problem, newsflash, the Middle East is still interested in us. Okay, the world is a very, very dangerous place, and it is getting more dangerous in no small part because of decisions by American leaders over the over the years to both parties to pull back and just sort of let the let the jungle grow back, as my brother would say. Yeah. And we have to recognize, no, we are in a different place in the world. We have to restore defense capabilities that we have allowed to atrophy over the years, including and especially the defense industrial base. 
it's fascinating because we go through these periods when the American, obviously in, 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 in relation to specific threats or things that are more directed at us, but we go through these periods when no government spending is too much. I mean, I, I, the obvious one is, you know, the vaccines, the, not a single person on earth said, we can't just throw this money at Pfizer and Moderna and these, you know, like give them everything, give them all the money and this happens in defense as well. And then, yeah, then there's this idea that we sort of, we reset back to equilibrium once the crisis has passed, but we can't reset to equilibrium because as you said, the tale of the Ukraine war, not just Putin's ambitions, but the tale will be, we're depleting American materiel by definition, we're giving it to another country to defend itself. We have a defense posture that says we need this material for ourselves. Who's going to put up the money for that? This is the supply and demand formula that you that you lay out, Noah, requires uh, that there is demand. And there's demand theoretically, but there's not demand practically, right? In other words, the demand practically is get me two million bullets tomorrow and we'll sort out the details later and you know what it would be great if we had five companies that made bullets instead of two because of consolidation then we could actually get competitive bidding and this and that and the other thing but we are expecting supply without goosing demand which is the danger of the republican right that's where we get to the political stuff like if Jim Jordan and the Republican House th start theoretically talking about how we need to cut everything by 10% that's discretionary including the defense budget at a time when we are committing there is a conventional war in Europe for the first time in 80 almost 80 years we are like this is this is madness and I mean, the good thing is that the people who actually are doing this on the ground in the House, right, Michael McCall and Mike Gallagher and all that, they're committed to the, they understand this formula. But, you know, if, you know, if half the Republican caucus is like, we don't, uh, and why are we, you know, listening to Tucker Carlson and Zelensky is Hunter Biden's cat's paw and da da, and then suddenly, you know, you have this populist revolt against this very straightforward, this is happening, and you have to replenish our stocks. Even if you don't like that the stuff is going to Ukraine, you still have to replenish our 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 our, our warehouses. I mean, you know, or you or you want a weaker America. I I mean, it's John. It's that's an even... excellent point and an excellent formulation. And I think the the problem is that. Uh, there are a lot of people there there is a there is a uh, there's an array of expert opinion people who are really following this and and the people in administration and serious people in congress who are arguing rightly about eaches and where reasonable people can disagree yeah and then you get out onto the fringes that are increasingly unfortunately important where the discussion is completely non-serious is completely fictional and is all about making points and scoring points and that it's just a reflection that we as a society have not focused our attention on the reality of the importance and urgency of these issues. And so we're still allowing ourselves to be shaped 
and our policy to be influenced by conversations that are just you know th- you know throwing verbal brickbats at one another and 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 scoring rhetorical points while serious people are arguing about you know exactly where where this should be and again there's there's room for disagreement now one of my problems though is if you want to galvanize americans to do something the only person who can really galvanize americans to do some two things is the president mm-hmm. and president biden has done a lot of very good things in this war and i don't want to take that away from him because he could have opted not to support Ukraine. He could have opted to call it a day much sooner than this. He could, you know, if he hadn't done what he's done, the war would be over by now and we'd be in a catastrophic position. I, it's very important to give him credit for the things that he's done that were not inevitable. Um, but what he hasn't done is get up and make the clarion call for we are in a new place in the world. Americans have to take national security much more seriously than we've had to take it. We don't want to fight. Of course, we don't want to fight wars. I'm doing everything I can to keep us out of the war. However, doing that involves supporting our partners and allies. And that requires us to be the arsenal of democracy. And the way to do that is we're going to have to defend. He hasn't made that kind of clarion call. Well, the left doesn't like they want to demoralize foreign policy, right? I mean, this is the problem. And there is a vacuum there for a leader who can step up and make make that vision clear to the people that Americans tend, correct me if I'm wrong, but polls show Americans still tend to support that role for our nation in the world. Yeah. And there's no Republican leader who's gotten up to make this case. Well, actually, that's not fair. There are Republicans who have made this case. But, you know, Andy McCarthy is certainly not making this not making this case and that's a problem because we need the house leader that we need the speaker you know to be making this case but you know it's an interesting point because if we go back in history so no no i mean uh bill clinton in the second term was as reviled as any political as any democratic political more reviled certainly as monica gate happened and all of that and um there was still a bipartisan consensus on the need to fight in the former Yugoslavia. And there was even a bipartisan consensus that he refused to capitalize on about striking back at Libya and at Saudi Arabia for the Kobar Towers bombing that he chickened out on um, in, in, in pretty significant ways. And there you had, you know, Bob Dole, whom he had beaten, you know, he had had a very, you know, was quite vicious toward. And there's Dole and Gingrich standing with Clinton on Bosnia. And, you know, even in 2001, like every set, uh, granted, that was a very unique circumstance. But, you know, we had the entire House and Senate standing on the Capitol steps singing God Bless America and voting in enormous numbers for not only the Iraq war, but the Homeland Security Department, the reorganization of the government, the Patriot Act, all of these things. And these Democrats hated Bush and Republicans hated Clinton. It's not like we're in a now, now everyone hates everybody a lot more. I don't know. It was kind of hard for people to hate. It's kind of hard. People don't remember how much, how angry Democrats were about the 2000 election. 
So it's not as though, and Kevin McCarthy is obviously in an incredibly weak position. He so is. I'm sorry, I said Andy McCarthy. Thank you. I know, I know. I, I, no, I, I, but I, I mean, he's him. in an incredibly <laughs> weak position, and he, from what we know, you know, what he said, Noah constantly brings this up that he and Steve Scalise said, "Yeah, we're not going to give Ukraine a blank check." That was their way of saying, "Don't worry, you know, we're gonna we're gonna be careful about the stewardship of this money," but that doesn't mean that they don't support the effort in ukraine okay and that's that's no that look this is the this is the key point and i think look the amazing thing is that we have had bipartisan support for the u.s effort toward ukraine in congress at in an amazing way and we actually saw a for a long time of similar rallying and the the aid to ukraine votes passed by huge margins uh throughout most of uh 2022 and there, there was a lot of bipartisan support for this. And Republicans who had been criticizing, criticizing Biden in general terms were supporting him, although expressing their frustrations with, with the specifics of the policy in a, in a good way. And I think that we've seen that fall off in a way that is not entirely surprising because it's hard when we are not fighting, when it's not our guys and it's not we're not under attack. It is hard to sustain that kind of bipartisanship. But the initial instincts here actually were incredibly bipartisan. And we remain and we just I saw numbers from uh, from an Ipsos poll at an event that I was at uh, yesterday. We're still at uh, something like 55 percent Republican support for uh, helping Ukraine in this way, or might even be for doing more. I'm not sure. Um, so we still have more a majority of Republicans who are uh, supporting the effort, which, considering how polarized things are, is remarkable. Um, and I think that it's important that we not get so caught up in the fact that a little bit of normality is returning to the American political discourse about this, um, because you, sustaining that kind of bipartisanship doesn't continue. And of course, it didn't last that long after 9-11 either, right? Because right. then we got into the debate about the Iraq war and right. then, you know, it started to break down. And I don't want to get into who blaming, you know, Bush yeah. or the Democrats for that. But this is this is not stunning. The reality, though, is that, thank you, Kevin McCarthy. Sorry, Andy. Um, Kevin, Kevin McCarthy um, has been pretty clearly trying to buy off the isolationist wing of his party by promising to do you know, more oversight and not write blank checks, but that he himself is interested in continuing to, to support Ukraine, um, which I think is the right thing for American national security. So I I'm I, I want yeah. to see what these votes actually look like. Right. We're talking ourselves into believing that we have a huge problem here. And it's very far from clear to me that we actually do have a problem because if Kevin will, you yeah. will allow there to be democratic votes that matter in those in those bills, aid bills will pass the House easily. There is a majority of House members who will pass aid bills for Ukraine right. if he, as long as he doesn't demand on having it be only Republicans who are voting for the bills. This is another, I think, element of the uh, political calculus. I talked about the political calculus of depressing Putin and of you know, and of t- making it clear that you know there is going to be Western support. Um, one of the weird things about the way we've been talking ourselves into this and backing into this with this kind of, oh, no, we might get too committed, it's uh, da, 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 is then you're not really participating in the victories. That number, that 55% number among Republicans, if we're if we look like, which we are, if we look like we're backing a winner, that number goes up. Everybody loves a winner. 
you know, it's not some lost cause. It's not some noble effort against the, you know, it's not like a, you know, it's not like a revolt in the streets that ultimately will be put down. Like there is a real shot that we are, you know, we are engaged in an effort that is going to lead to a victory against somebody that most people think is an enemy of the United States. And those victories, the American people could share in, yeah. but the Biden administration and Republicans, <laughs> but the hasn't quite gotten to a way to formulate that. And I don't blame them exactly. I do. Because, Hang on. Okay. No, okay. But I you do. Blame because them. this is the, okay. because this, you put your finger on a problem. The Biden administration has decided that it is not willing to say that it desires there to be a Ukrainian victory. Right. Because a Ukrainian victory implies a Russian defeat. And this gets back to the original theory of the case about escalation and off ramps for Putin. That the, the Biden administration position seems to be that we don't want to say that we are trying to help the Ukrainians defeat the Russians, right. because that would be bad in some way from the standpoint of escalation or, or off ramp or I don't know what. But that 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 hyper intellectualized formulation and I say hyper intellectualized because, look, guys, somebody's going to win this war and somebody's going to lose it. And we, it's, you know, Americans have gotten accustomed to this hyper-intellectualized notion of nobody ever really wins wars or nobody ever really loses wars, which is kind of like not true. Yeah. And somebody's going to win this war, somebody's going to lose this war. And if we're backing Ukraine, our desire is, has to be that the Ukrainians win and the Russians lose. But the our unwillingness, the administration's unwillingness to say that we are trying to help the Ukrainians win and the help the Russians lose makes it impossible to make the kind of call that you're talking about john which i think is actually very important i i think there's another yeah. uh way in which uh there's there's another problem for biden here um that you can blame him for and i think he, part of why he cannot make the unapologetic case that the world has changed and now requires a forward-leaning u.s military posture is because of what he oversaw in afghanistan uh, and and went around saying, I am the president who got us out of war for the first time in in 20 years, months later, months later, in, in part as as a as a result of that move, the world changed and requires the the, the kind of case that that Fred is talking about that we need to hear from a president. Although but it seems he... to me that it seems to me that um, you could um, erase some of the political costs that you inflicted he did he, he is yeah he, he is erasing it and i think I, I think part of that is conscious and i think the administration understands that it's doing that which is which provides it with a good healthy self-interest in doing the right thing here which you know which is great but look i mean abe fundamentally you're talking about doing more or less what jimmy carter did after the soviet invasion right which is not quite say i was wrong but de facto, except, okay, I, I was wrong. I can't, you know, that's not the way the world is. And I've, and I've, I've got to do it. Now, of course, that cost Jimmy Carter re-election, among other, that, among other things, cost Jimmy Carter yeah. re-election. Um, and Biden presumably doesn't want to do that. So he's he's trying to thread a needle here. But I, I think that the bigger, I don't really think that that's where it's coming from in the administration. I think the administration is preoccupied with the, we don't want to get into a nuclear war. And I fully support that. I don't want to get into a nuclear war either. We don't want to turn this into a Russia NATO war. I don't want to do that either. They are worried about, I think, you know, Putin going Russia collapse scenarios. And 
here I think we have some thinking problems um, because I mean, I can go into that, but I think we have some yeah. thinking problems about that. And so we're worried about like, how do we land this plane, which is a reasonable question, but we we're acting as if it matters whether we say that we want to defeat the Russians or yeah. not. And the truth is it doesn't matter to the Russians because they say that already. And they, this, they are, they have framed this from the outset as a NATO aggression against Russia. That was always the justification for this war. It doesn't matter if we give that evidence or give that. It doesn't matter because Putin isn't using evidence. Yeah. So all we're doing is harming our own domestic support by these nuanced lines that have no, I don't think have any meaningful effect on Putin or on Russia. And I think this is where we're overthinking things. 12, 13 years ago, I'm not sure when, you and Jack Keane came and spoke at a commentary's annual dinner, which uh, preceded uh, the the roast that we now do. And you said something at that dinner that is very redolent of what you just said, which is you said, and you were talking about Afghanistan, I think, and I think this was just at the beginning of the Obama administration. Uh, you said, you said, there are words that we are not using. We are engaged in two different military conflicts in the world. We're in Iraq and we're in Afghanistan. Why aren't we talking about victory? There are words that you use in war. And the word victory is one of the words. If you go and you fight a war, the purpose of fighting the war is to achieve victory. And you do that because you're fighting with honor and you are fighting with purpose. And, and it was striking to me then because it hadn't really occurred to me at that time that we had surrendered the vocabulary of war that way. And who made us do it? Only we made us do it. Um, you know, this kind of weird combination of the long long held isolationist impulse on the right and the left and the, the lack of belief in the use of the 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 purposes of the use of force to correct global errors and 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 global disasters and all of that but uh, so much of what goes on and continues to go on here including Biden and Afghanistan remains an argument with ourselves yeah the taliban yeah. didn't convince us to leave afghanistan no this was entirely a domestic conversation it, it was. And look, this was never more starkly in evidence than in Zelensky's address to Congress, where he offered a, a pie into victory and a call to victory. And it was received with, uh, yeah. uh, we should talk more about negotiations. Um, and that's, that, that's, that's indicative of this. Of course, he's talking about victory and, we should be too, because look, we've been preparing ostensibly for decades, uh, NATO contingency plans for a Russian attack on NATO. That's what all the NATO forces in Europe are about. They're not, we're never about invading Russia. They're, they're about defending against a Russian attack. They're about defending our NATO allies. That's what all the NATO equipment there is for. That's what all the ammunition is for. That's what the leopards are for. Hey, Germans, you don't have a use for the leopards other than defending against uh russian invasion so putin has in a way gifted us with the opportunity of fighting the war to defend nato 
not on NATO territory and not with NATO troops. That's what's going on here. So we are executing effectively the contingency plan that we had for the Russian attack on NATO with Ukrainian troops and Ukrainian losses in Ukraine. Something ever so slightly ignoble about that. But from a real realpolitik standpoint, this is what I wish members of Congress would understand and say to their constituents. There are no better defense dollars the United States will ever spend than the dollars we spend helping Ukraine destroy the conventional Russian military without having to spill a drop of NATO blood or fight on NATO territory. That's what's going on here. And that's why a Ukrainian victory over Russia in this war is a NATO victory and an American victory and something to be pursued. Red Kagan, this was a, a remarkable conversation we've had here. I think everybody has been very illuminated by this. And um, what is the URL for the Institute for the Study? It's ISW. Understanding, understand, no, I wish. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. Understandingwar.org. Understandingwar.org for daily updates, not only on 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 uh, on the war in Ukraine, but also, are you still doing daily updates on Iran? We are. That's the yeah. Critical Threats team that's doing that, and that's right. criticalthreats.org. Okay, criticalthreats.org for uh, daily updates for Iran. on Iran, and understandingwar.org for daily updates on Ukraine. Thank you so much. And for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.